Like I said, Scott is gone this morning, and uh, I uh, have heard of this guy, Gino, like, since I got here. Yeah. <laughs> I guess they like you. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so Gino's here. Without further ado, I mean, you can explain yourself here. <laughs> Let me get off stage. Good to see you guys. How are we? It's good to see you. I, I, I look around and I see a lot of faces looking up here going, I don't know the guy either. Um, ushers are coming down. If you need a Bible, go ahead and grab one. Uh, my name is Gino. I uh, came here to Rock Bible Church in 2011. Um, worked with Scott pretty closely for more than 20 years. Uh, I've known Scott for a long, long time. And uh, I said in first service, I'll say it again, that, uh, you know, he's been a friend, a mentor, a brother. And uh, Jesus says in, in the scriptures that those who endure to the end shall be saved. Uh, there's a lot of opposition towards the, the church. There's a lot, of, a lot of opposition towards God's word. I, I think it's going to get harder, not easier, to be a preacher of the scriptures. And I'm flatly convinced, I would bet my own salvation on it, that Scott's a man that will endure to the end. And uh, no matter what may come his way, uh, he will stand faithfully in the scriptures uh, as God has given them to us. And so uh, I encourage you to continue to invest in him, invest in this church, and continue to come and hear truth. And um, he's a good dude, so I like him a lot. I'm glad you guys do too. And uh, with that, let's go ahead and get into the scriptures this morning. We're going to be looking at Matthew 17. It's a... It's a, it's a pretty profound section of scripture. Sometimes we can read through it a little quickly and, and miss some of the insight that it gives us. And as best as we can this morning, what we need to do is put on an Old Testament and Jewish lens. That's the lens we need to, as best we can, try to look through because this story is packed with Old Testament significance and Theology. I would go so far as to contend that you can't really understand this story without an understanding of the Old Testament, without an understanding of the history of the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. The first thing we'll see is that it happens on a mountain. And mountains are pretty significant in the Bible. Moses went up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. He's going to be in our story. Elijah went up to Mount Carmel to defeat, defeat the prophets of Baal and had some 450 false prophets killed. Uh, Noah was in the ark, and the ark landed on Mount Ararat. It's a pretty big event. Uh, Abraham took Isaac up to Mount Gerizim, was going to sacrifice his son to the Lord. Moses was out on Mount Pisgah, or Mount Nebo, where he got to see the promised land, but then God didn't allow him to go in because of his disobedience. And Jesus on the Mount of Olives uh, gives his discourse and at the base of the Mount of Olives is the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane, where he prays before his death. And here we have the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, we don't know exactly which mount it is. Some think Mount Tabor, some think Mount Hermon. Maybe you've heard of Mount Hermon up in the Santa Cruz Mountains. That's where it takes its name from. It wasn't that mountain, but they stole the name. Uh, God often meets people in these high places, okay? And significant things often happen. And this transfiguration, as I hope you'll see, 
is a pinnacle experience, not just for the disciples that were there, but for us as well. And I'm going to give you the punchline before we even get into the scriptures. And the punchline is this. There's 66 books in the Bible that tell one story with one person at the center of it all. And it's not you. It's Jesus. Jesus is the point of scripture. The Bible is all about Jesus. The theme of the Bible is the kingdom of God. And the structure of the Bible is what we call covenant, which is essentially promises made, promises broken, and promises kept. Who do you suppose are the great promise breakers of scripture? It's us, right? Yeah. God is the great promise keeper of scripture. And today we're going to see the fulfillment of one of the greatest promises that were ever made, that God would send a savior, a messiah, to reconcile people back to himself. And we learn from John that Jesus, in fact, is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen? Now, there are many that uh, are in the world today, even in pulpits today, that would like to change that definite article, the. They'd like to change it to an indefinite article, a, that Jesus is a way, a truth, and a life. But that's not what the scriptures affirm. A little word like the, ho is the, the Greek word, is very important. That definite article that there's only one pathway to God. He goes on to say, no one comes to the Father except through me. And what we find in the scriptures is that Jesus himself is an offense. He's a stumbling block to Jews and he's foolishness to Gentiles. But for those of us who are being saved, he is the power of God, amen? 1 Corinthians 1.18 so let's pray and then we'll get into our passage. Lord, thanks for the morning. Thanks for the worship this morning. And uh, thanks that we come here to worship you. That anything for us is secondary at best, Lord, that, that we come here to worship our great God, the God of creation, the God who has made a way to reconcile sinners back unto himself through our Lord, through our Savior, Jesus Christ. So Lord, we ask you to bless this time now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me read our passage for you. I'm going to back up just one verse to 1628 because it goes with the context of what we'll be looking at today. Jesus says, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And the reason Matthew put that there is because Jesus is going to, uh, the, or the event rather, is now going to happen of those who are going to see the Son of Man coming into his kingdom, at least in a small way, before they taste death. And so we get to the transfiguration here that after six days, Luke uh, chapter eight, or Luke nine says eight days. Essentially what this means is a week, okay? A week has passed. So after six days or a week, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. 
And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Amen? Amen. And so I have just two points that I want to make this morning. So if you're taking some notes, this would be number one. And it's simply this. Jesus is the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God. Jesus is the beloved son. He's the Messiah of Israel and the world. He's God incarnate. He's the promised one of Genesis 3.15. This is my favorite title for Jesus, the snake crusher. He's the prophet that Moses declared. He's the Davidic king of glory. He's the true prophet that will destroy all false prophets. And he's the creator of the universe and its sustainer, as we're told in John 1 and Colossians 1. And all of these things, all of these titles, all of these things we've talked about come together in this one event we call the transfiguration. About a week has passed since Jesus was declared to be the Christ. Peter, he asked, who do you say that I am? He says, you're the Christ. Uh, after he said and declared that he will build his church, uh, and after Jesus has told them that his followers will take up their cross and follow him. And Jesus being declared the Christ is the fact and the idea that he has been declared the Messiah, the anointed one. He is the savior of the world. He is the king of Israel. There's no ambiguity in this phrase, you are the Christ, okay? There's no ambiguity on the part of those who are making this profession. And so what this does is it moves Jesus out of the category of being a mere man. It moves him out of the category of being a good teacher or even a prophet. And it moves him into the category that he is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And he's not your Lord. He's not the Lord of the Christian faith. He's not someone you know's Lord. Jesus, the Bible would declare, is Lord of all. He's Lord of all things. There is no other. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Philippians reminds us that one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. They can either do it here and spend their eternity in heaven with God, or they can do it after this life as God sends them to hell. That's the truth of scripture. Jesus is Lord and so Jesus takes this small band of disciples and he leads them, he directs them, Peter, James, and John, up to this private meeting on the mountain. And the Greek text conveys this idea that this was an intentional event. Jesus knew it was going to happen. And so he selects these three from his inner circle and he takes them up the mountain. And one of the questions we might ask is, well, why the transfiguration? Why this event where Jesus is transfigured before them? And most commentators, and I would agree, is that what this does is it sets the tone for giving these three disciples great assurance because of the things that are going to transpire and take place. Because you see, they were expecting a Davidic king as the Old Testament scriptures promised, but they were expecting a political or a military leader. They felt that the Messiah was gonna come in all his glory and restore Israel among the earth. They're confused even now as Jesus talks about his death. 
And so he's going to give them a glimpse of who he is so that they have assurance, not only assurance when he comes to the cross to sustain them until he's resurrected, but also to show them the path. Because the path of every prophet that's ever lived, the path of Jesus himself, and the path of every Christian who seeks to follow Jesus is one of suffering and pain. Friends, it's hard to follow Jesus. Jesus said it would be. He said the road is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And he says something that ought to strike fear in the heart of every soul and few are those who find it. Friends, suffering is part of the Christian life. We live in a broken world. We live in a a world that's still consumed with the flesh and sin and the devil. And yes, Jesus has overcome these things, but he hasn't consummated his kingdom yet, right? He's conquered the cross so that through faith in him, we can have life, but he has yet to consummate his kingdom and make all things right. Some of you know those words ring true, that this life is hard. And you know that through suffering, we're drawn closer to who? To Jesus, to God. And so Jesus is giving them some assurance that they'll need as they set on this path. And listen, we know this is true because all 12 of the disciples, all 12 of them, their lives after the resurrection ends badly. Right? The life of Paul ends badly badly they suffer it's part of the program and so he's encouraging them because they're greatly confused even back in chapter 16 verse 22 when Peter is declaring Jesus the Christ and he says he must suffer Peter says far be it from you Lord this will never happen to you that's when Jesus rebukes him right he says you have in mind the things of man not the things of God They didn't understand what God was doing and how he was going to do it. Another question is, why just a few? Well, I think the answer is because if Jesus were to show his glory to any more than just the three disciples, people would rush down and try to make him king. It was such an incredible event that if more people saw it, uh, they would probably try to rush and make him king on the spot. And that's not what he wanted. So he said, don't even talk about this event until when? after my death. And so he's transfigured. The text says that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. Luke 9 tells us that the men were sleeping. It was probably a day's hike. They were probably praying. And so they, uh, and so they fell asleep. And as they were awakened, they saw this incredible uh, transfiguration. And the word here is metamorpho. It's met- where we get our word metamorphosis that Jesus was transfigured before for them. And it literally means a change of nature or a change of essence. He's still Jesus, but he's fundamentally different. There's something about him that is glorious. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became whiter than any of you could ever get out of your washing machine. He was brilliant in light. He was transfigured before them. Tried to think of some examples of what this might look like or what this might mean. And uh, one of the things that came to mind was boot camp. I've been to boot camp. Some of you have probably been to boot camp. And you see a young man that goes in at 120 pounds, meek, mild-mannered, and comes out three months later at 150 pounds and confident and strong and stands upright and says things like, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. 
right? It's still them, but they're different. Another example maybe is if you've been on a missions trip, you've been impacted by a missions trip and you go away and, and it impacts you to a degree where you come back and you're just different. And then maybe the most striking place we ought to see a transfiguration that has great impact is when someone becomes a Christian. Now, this can be either a place of great contentment or a place of really great distress because there are many who claim and profess to be Christians today, but you wouldn't know it by the way they live their lives. Amen? We have this word metamorphose, so let's look in a couple different places where this word is used, because it's only used twice, again, in the New Testament. And the first one is in Romans 12, 2, where it says, do not be conformed to this world, don't be like the world, but be transformed, metamorphosed, changed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you can discern the will of God, you can discern what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. All right, so we're to be changed by the renewing of our mind. I don't know about you, but the only way I know how to renew my mind is to get into God's word, All right? We need to uh, bring God's word into our mind so that it can be transformed. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Paul uses this word. He says, and we all with unveiled faces, that's a direct uh, allusion to Moses because Moses uh, was in the presence of God and he had to veil his face. But Paul is saying here, we get to with unveiled faces Behold the glory of the Lord as we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is a spirit. We call this sanctification. We're being transformed, metamorphosed from one degree to another as, we be, as the spirit changes us more and more into the image of Christ. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians, he says, examine yourself to see if you're even in the faith. Examine yourself. Friend, if you've been a Christian for any length of time and you can't indicate or spot places in your life where you've changed from one degree to another, that's a red flag. That's a red flag because the Bible tells us that when someone is born again, the spirit of Christ comes into them and the Lord from Ezekiel 36 takes their heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh and that the Lord himself will compel them to obey his commands. And so what we find here is that Jesus is transfigured before them. And so they're no longer looking at the suffering servant. They got a glimpse, and we don't know to what degree, but they got a glimpse of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Can you imagine? It was so overwhelming that Peter just started acting weird again. And we'll talk about that in a moment. So he's fundamentally different. He's transformed, and Moses and Elijah are there. And if, you, oh, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, I'm going to familiarize you with it a little bit in just a moment. This, this, is, this is incredible. This is incredible to have Moses and Elijah on the scene as they're talking about Jesus' departure. Moses got to see the promised land but not enter it and then God took him away and buried him. Elijah was taken up in a chariot by God so they both had interesting, very interesting deaths. But here's what's most significant. Moses saw the glory of God. God put him in the cleft of the rock and let him see him as he passed and his face glowed. He had to veil it. 
because it, sh- it, was so, it shined so much with the glory of God. Now, this is different from Jesus because Jesus' glory is innate. He is God, and his glory shone from inside himself. But if you have a Bible, turn way to your left to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And this might be in the top 10, maybe five of most significant passages of the Old Testament. And Moses is going to speak, and then God is going to speak. And I want you to hear this verse. Chapter 18, verse 15. And it reads as thus, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, Moses tells the Israelites, like me from among you, from your brothers, Jesus from the tribe of Judah. And it is to him you shall listen. You should highlight this verse and write Jesus right next to it because that's the prophet he's talking about. But let's read on, verse 16. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. They were in the presence of the Lord. They just got close. And they said, no, no, Moses, you go up and speak for us. You're the prophet. If we hear any more from the Lord ourselves, we think we're gonna die. And he goes on, and the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have said and what they have spoken. And this is the Lord speaking. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And listen to verse 19. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak the prophet in my name, I myself will require it of them. Let me translate that for you. Anybody who doesn't listen to the prophet I send, I'm going to kill them. That's what that means. Jesus is significant, yes? He's more than that. He's the Father's beloved Son. Think about the person you love most. It doesn't compare, friend, to the love the Father has for His beloved Son. So this is who's standing on the mountain with Jesus. Moses, the lawgiver, God's prophet. He is profoundly important in the scriptures and here he is on the scene. Then we get to Elijah. Elijah, the great prophet, the destroyer of false prophets, 1 Kings 18. And I want you to see a passage just going backwards in in our section of scripture in chapter 16, verse 27. Jesus has said, If anyone would come after me, if anyone would be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give for return of his soul? And listen to 27. For the Son of Man, that was Jesus' favorite title for himself out of Daniel 7, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Okay, this is talking about the end times when the Lord returns and then he will repay each person according to what he has what? Done. You see, friends, 
We place a lot of emphasis on Jesus, the suffering servant, as we ought to. He, he went to the cross for our sake. We run to the cross. It's the only place we can find safe refuge. But friends, he's not coming back that way. He's coming back on a white horse with fire in his eyes and a name on him that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so what we need to understand is that God is going to require it of every human being based on what they believe about Jesus. Now they have some questions about Elijah and he tells them Elijah has come. He was on the mountain and he tells them Elijah is represented in the person of John the Baptist. And I want to show you another text that I think is, is not just important but just kind of neat to see. Turn to your left if you're in Matthew 17 just several pages to Malachi chapter 4. It's the last chapter of the last book in the Old Testament. In the last book, in the last chapter of the Old Testament, where we have this 400-year period of silence, we see an incredible prophetic statement given from the prophet. Now, here's what's, what's kind of interesting, is that Malachi is the last book in our Protestant Bibles. It's also the last book in the Jewish Bible, okay? Jewish people today don't believe in Christ, so they don't have New Testaments. But Malachi is still the last prophetic book in their Bibles. It's the last prophetic book in the Catholic Bible. And we read these words in chapter 4 of Malachi. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That sounds bad. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you, those of you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Here it is. Remember the law of my so servant Moses the statues and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearers of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, praise God, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now this day that Malachi is speaking of hasn't come yet. It's still to come. But look what happened in the middle. Jesus came. And who's he speaking with? Moses and Elijah. And then we get this passage from Jesus in chapter 5 of Matthew, verse 17. For I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to what? Fulfill them. What's that mean? It means that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the King the Davidic king, the fulfillment of the law of Moses, the, Abra the, the one who fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. He is the Lord of Lord, the King of Kings of the Old Testament, the Messiah that God promised to the Jews and to us. Amen? He is the fulfillment of all these things. And so the message to Matthew's Jewish audience is crystal clear. Jesus is the Messiah. And he is also the judge. 
He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And then we see the glory cloud, a bright cloud that overshadowed them. And this is where Peter goes a little weird. He does what a lot of men do when they don't know what to say. He starts building stuff. All right? Some of you have probably been in a situation you didn't know what to say, so you just went to the garage and started building stuff, right? And it's a little misleading when the text says that the cloud overshadowed them because the text goes right on to say that it's a bright cloud. So it's not as if it cast a shadow and it enveloped them. We don't know to what degree. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because there is just a dump truck of theology in the idea of God showing up in the cloud. We see it at Mount Sinai. We see it in Exodus 40 in the desert, the pillar of cloud filling the tabernacle, Leviticus 16, Numbers 9, 1 Kings 8, Isaiah 6, all the way through to Revelation. And let me just... Uh, briefly say so we can move on that the the cloud here is the glory cloud and it always represents when it shows up the presence of God Almighty God himself is in their midst the God of the universe the God who created all things is in their presence he's in their midst and Peter's ignored. And a voice comes from the cloud and says, this is my beloved son who I am well pleased, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Listen to him. And they all heard it. And what was their response? They were terrified. The ESV doesn't do this word justice is actually two words, phobeo, where we get phobia, and sphordo, which means vehemently or extremely. I think the King James or the New King James has, they were in terror. They were terrified by this voice, and they fell on their faces, just like we read in Exodus 19 and 20. The people said, Moses, you have to go speak for us lest we die. If we hear the voice of God again, we'll die. Friends, this is the appropriate and proper response to God. I'm convinced if we heard his voice this moment, we would react in a similar way. Isaiah was ushered into the presence of God, probably the holiest man on the face of the earth in his time. And he fell to the ground and worshiped and said, woe is me, I am undone. They heard this voice and they were in terror. And then you get this amazing contrast that all of a sudden it's gone and Jesus comes to them and he touched them and he said, rise, have no fear. That's Jesus, friends. He wasn't afraid of the Father. He didn't move. He didn't fall on his face. He's the beloved son. He's very comfortable in the presence of God's voice. And he came and touched the disciples. And he said, rise, have no fear. Why is that important? Because only in Jesus will we find the refuge we need to escape the wrath of God. Only in Christ. We must run to Christ. We must pursue Christ. We must find refuge in Christ. Only in Christ 
will we find safety for our souls against the wrath of God. Paul says in Philippians 3, he says, I need a righteousness that is not my own. I need the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. He's literally saying, I need a righteousness that belongs to someone else to be put upon me so I can escape the wrath of God. And then it only comes through faith in Jesus. Amen? Isn't that a beautiful contrast we see in this passage? Jesus, the great comforter, telling his disciples, rise and have no fear. Number two, the heart of the matter when it comes to this story is simply this. We're to listen to Jesus. We're to listen to Jesus. We're to listen to Jesus, amen? That's God's will for us, to listen to Jesus. I've been in in full-time ministry for well over 20 years now, and I can't tell you how many times someone has come to me and said, you know, I'm just trying to find God's will for my life. And I looked at him and I say, friend, stop searching for God's will for your life and get into God's will. What's God's will, friends? It's very simple. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. The voice that caused such fear This is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. Listen to him. Ought to resonate in our hearts and in our minds from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to bed. One commentator writes these words. He says, the father demonstrates his divine mutual loving relationship with the son, declaring his approval of everything the son does and says. Everything about the son is in perfect accord with the will of the Father. So listen to him. If he tells you he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die, believe him. If he tells you he'll be raised on the third day, believe him. If he tells you to take up your cross and follow him, that is what you are to do. If he tells you he will come again in glory, then believe him and live accordingly. Live accordingly. Listen to him. Friends, Jesus is God's beloved son. And those who fail to listen to him, God will require it of them. All of us will stand before the Lord and give an account. Let me read to you maybe one of our most beloved passages. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his beloved, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. We've done so much damage to this passage because we use it and then we look at people and we say, see, See how much God loves you? That's not even in the passage. See how well it's implied. Do you know the word there for world is cosmos? All that God made? God loves all that he made. To the degree that he was willing to send his beloved son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Romans 8 tells us the whole cosmos is crying out for God to return and make things right. Who's the point of John 3.16, friends? Christ, the beloved Son, the one who makes a path for sinners to be reconciled to God. Amen? Like that's good news. That's the good news. And we're to listen to Jesus. 
And it's right in the passage that you must believe in the Son or what will happen to you? You'll perish. And it's reinforced in verse 18 where it says those who don't believe are condemned already. We must see the gravity of this verse. We must understand what it means to believe in the Son. We've done a lot of damage to our understanding of what the Bible means when it says believe. You see, believing in the Son from a biblical perspective comes down to one very basic principle, and it's this, obedience. Obedience. That's what it means to listen to Jesus. And those who refuse to obey or listen to the Son, the Lord will require it of him. You see, we've reduced the gospel to a Savior to be believed in without a king to be obeyed. Let me tell you a truth. You cannot have Jesus as your Savior if you're not willing to bow to him as your Lord. You cannot have Jesus as your Savior if you're not willing to bow to him as your Lord. We've created a gospel filled with emotionalism and decisionism. A.W. Tozer has a great quote. He says, the gospel today has been so watered down that if it were poison, it wouldn't hurt anyone. And if it were medicine, it wouldn't cure anyone. Just believe in Jesus. God loves you so much. If you were the last person on earth, he would have sent Jesus for you. It's a lie, friend. Matthew 12, 7, Jesus says these words. If you only had known the meaning of this, that I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would have not condemned the innocent. Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees and he's quoting Hosea in chapter 6, verse 6, where Hosea, speaking on God's behalf, says, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. In other words, you can come to church, you can uh, have a spotless attendance record, you can put some money in the basket, you can volunteer in ministry, you can sing the songs, you can praise with your hands in the air, you can pray the prayers. But if you walk out those doors and deny Jesus by the way that you live, you prove that he doesn't have any space in your heart. That's ritualism. That's just going through the motions. Galatians 5 tells us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are you these things? That's what it means, friends, to be born again. To be born of the Spirit. So many today want to have a mountaintop experience. They want that mountaintop high. Let me read to you. And listen, I'm not against emotions. Don't take it that way. Emotions are great. I've had some extraordinary emotional uh, interactions with the Lord. Some great experiences with the Lord. Some of them on top of a mountain. But we long so much for that mountaintop high. And let me read to you what Peter wrote some years later in his second epistle because he hearkens back to this time they spent in the transfiguration. You guys doing okay? Do I have like 10 more minutes? All right. Somebody said earlier that you guys get the second service extra and that equals like 40 more minutes usually. All right. 
I'm going to try and wind this down and get you out of here in the next 10 minutes. Peter writes these words, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. He's hearkening back to the transfiguration. And listen to what he says. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. What's the prophetic word? It's Peter's Bible. What's Peter's Bible? It's the Old Testament. Jesus had a Bible. It's called the Old Testament. And this is what Peter's saying. Through Jesus, the prophetic word that you've been given is more fully confirmed. We know these words from God are true because they have been more fully confirmed to us through the work and person of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to write this, to which you will do well to pay attention. It's the message to us. We ought to read that thing, right? And he goes on, and this is maybe my favorite part of this passage. We ought to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, Psalm 119. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. God's word is our light, friends. We need to know it. We need to grow in our knowledge of God. We need to grow in our knowledge of who Jesus is. Experiences are great. Emotions are great. But if they're not tethered, if they're not tied to an understanding of who Jesus is, they will mean little when you stand to give an account before the Lord. Because here's the thing. God's not interested in your account of who he is when you stand before him. He knows who he is. Here's the frightening thing. He knows who you are better than you know yourself. You know, the Bible says we're going to have to give an account but I don't think we're going to have to say a word. We're just going to stand before the judge and he's going to know you through and through. There's nothing you can say. There's nothing you can say that he doesn't already know. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophet at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. So listen to him. I told you earlier that Jesus is the hermeneutical key to the entirety of scriptures. A couple New New Testament passages confirm that for us. Luke 24 is the road to Emmaus, where some disciples are walking along the path. Jesus has been resurrected, and he comes along the path. He says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, are you the only person in the region that doesn't know about Jesus? And he says, tell me about it. And then it says, from that time on, he began to explain to them from Moses and the prophets and the writings that all the scriptures pointed to him. All of it. John 5, he tells the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have a righteousness before God, but you fail to recognize that the scriptures point to me. I'm the righteousness you need. 
You cannot do enough good works to earn the righteousness to merit salvation before a holy God. And so let me give you a couple points, one point really of application this morning and why I think this passage is important and uh, what I want to share with you this morning. And it's simply this. There has been a fundamental disconnect in the Christian faith between profession of Christ and possession of Christ. Let me explain to you what that means. There are those who confess to know Christ yet deny him in the way that they live. And the reason that happens is because they don't actually possess him. John 3.3 tells us that we must be born again. Born again. That's a gift from God. That's the gift of grace that we can receive through faith. And the Bible, friends, listen, the Bible only has one prescription for identifying those who are in Christ. Just one. And it's this. It's fruit. That's it. And he's not talking about oranges and apples. All right? It's not my place to judge. I don't know if someone's saved or not. That's above my pay grade. That's God's business. But when someone professes to know Jesus and then denies him by the way that they live, that's a red flag. And we're called as brothers and sisters to urge others back, say, no, don't go down that path. That's the wide road that leads to destruction. Repent, repent, repent. Put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus and him alone. Now, there's three things I think have caused this watering down of the gospel. I'll give them to you very quickly. The first is the hyper-grace movement. Some have called this the great deception of the 21st century. And it's this idea that God is so gracious, if you just believe in him, you can live however you want. It doesn't matter if you sin. And so many people live in the delusion that they can live however they want because they've got Jesus as a Willy Wonka ticket, the golden ticket that'll get them into heaven. Do you see how presumptuous that is? Do you see how disgusting that is to treat God, God's the Father's beloved Son? Do we not see how disgraceful that is? To say, I believe in the shame and disgrace of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, nailed to a cross so that I can do whatever I want. What a disgrace. What a shame. The second thing I think that has done much to destroy the gospel is the doctrine of evolution. And we live in a time where we have generations now that have literally been indoctrinated to accept evolution as pure fact. I don't have enough time to get into any of those details, friends, but if you think that evolution and the Bible are compatible, you're kidding yourself. The Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and he saw everything that he made, and it was very good. What's the process of evolution? Death. Everything has to die. Death didn't even come on the scene until Adam sinned. And here's why this is important. Here's why this is important. Listen to me. If you get nothing else, I hope you get this. If people can destroy the authority of Genesis 1, 
everything else is up for grabs. Everything else is up for grabs. Now you get to pick and choose. Thirdly, self-worship, deification. It's called idol worship. What's the thing that we love to worship most? Ourselves. Ourselves, friends. We've seen this lately in some of the movements that are happening in our country and one of them that I think demonstrates this idea most clearly is the, is the issue of gender confusion. The idea that people can speak their gender as a truth and speak it into existence. In spite of evidence, in spite of science, in spite of biology, I speak a truth, what I say is truth, and it actually comes into existence that this is now what I am. And everybody else needs to acknowledge that. Friends, come on. Who's the only being that can actually speak truth into existence? God. Who are we trying most to be like and replace? God. Once you destroy the authority of the Bible, everything is up for grabs. And God will require it of you one day. So what does it mean to listen to Jesus? I had several verses, but I'm only going to pick one or two so I can wrap this up. What does it actually mean to listen to Jesus? I think it was last week you heard the words from Jesus to Peter. Who do you say that I am, Peter? He says, you are the Christ. And let's make no mistake about it. There's no ambiguity in that statement. You are the Lord of Lords. And listen, friends, the Bible is not Jewish history. It's not Christian history. It's world history. This is the truth of the world we live in, period, end stop. According to its own testimony. So what does it mean to listen to Jesus? In John 14, Jesus says these words, if you love me, you obey my commands. He doesn't say it once. He doesn't even say it twice. Friends, he doesn't even say it three times. In the course of two chapters, he says it some four, five, maybe six times and alludes to it another several. Because profession of faith leads to obedience in faith. Listen, we profess a faith. Just just in, in everyday sort of logical terms, we profess to have faith in Jesus. What does faith lead to or what ought faith lead to? How about this? Faithfulness. If we claim to have faith, wouldn't that faith be demonstrated in faithfulness? Makes sense, right? It's not a hard connect. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. You see, friends, the truth is this. You cannot have Jesus as your Savior without also having him as your Lord. And we need to be reminded of that every day. One pastor writes these words. And then I'll say some things that are a little more edifying, I promise. He says, besides hell, there is no more terrifying idea in the Bible than God setting you free to run in the imagination of your own heart. It's important to know God's word. It's important to know who Jesus is, which that idea, by the way, is right out of Romans 1. People chose to worship the creation rather than the creator and they suppressed the truth, Romans 1 says. 
And Paul reminds them of one of the scariest, scariest punishments God could ever cast upon someone is to say, have your own way. Have your own way. Believe what you want to believe. Because here's the gospel, friends. In the beginning, God created all things, the world, the animals, the oceans, the stars, and people, and it was all good. Adam and Eve were created. They were given two paths that they could choose to follow. One led to an eternity with God, to glory, as he would mature them and grow them. They'd eventually get to eat from every tree, or they could choose a path of destruction, of disobedience to God, a path that led down a road that disconnected them from God because God's righteous and God's holy. And they chose that path. They chose to worship themselves rather than to worship God, to worship the creation rather than the creator. The relationship was broke. God's holiness would not contend with man's sin. This is our problem. This is our problem. This is the world's problem. And it was not man, but God who set out to restore the relationship. And we see that restoration take place in progressive revelation of covenant and promises made. God constantly reaching down and using people and and bringing people to him to be his voice box to the world to say, repent, turn back to God. Don't walk in darkness, walk in the light. And this goes on for thousands of years and culminates to the high point of the story where he sends his beloved son, God incarnate, that through the disgrace and the shame of the cross, that Jesus would live the life we never could in righteousness and die the death we all deserve and take the wrath of God upon himself so that people who would believe in him, put their faith in him, can be saved. Friends, that is a great love. For God so loved the world, he sent his own son, his beloved son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. From the words of Isaiah, run to Jesus, run to the cross, run to Christ, and find salvation for your souls. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this event of the transfiguration and all that took place there. And may we just be awestruck with the great love that you have for your son. And Lord, how that love can be extended to us through faith by your grace. Lord, may all of us here be reminded that we have sinned and we have fallen short of your glory. And Lord, there is nothing we can do to merit or earn our way into heaven. That it's by grace we're saved and that you've made a path, you've made a way And if we would put our faith, our trust, our hope in Jesus, if we would pick up our cross and we would follow him, if we would commit our lives to him because of what he's done for us, that we do good works, Lord, not to merit salvation, but because of the good work that's been done in Jesus Christ on our behalf. And Lord, that we would live under the authority of your good word. that we can have a confidence and assurance that one day we'll spend eternity with you. Lord, remind us even this day that this is not our home. We're strangers and aliens in a lost world, that our home is in heaven, that our home is with you 
and with Jesus and that we can't even imagine the things that we'll experience when either we die or you return if we are in you. That's my prayer for each and every one of us this morning. Lord, as the offering comes around, pray that you bless it. That truth will continue to be preached from this pulpit. And that the ears of those who walk through those doors will hear your word. We pray these things in Christ's name.